Hi, everyone. Welcome to Kremlin File. Today, we've got a very special guest, Alexandra Matvichuk. Alexandra is a Ukrainian human rights lawyer and a civil society leader. She heads a nonprofit organization, the Center for Civil Liberties, and she's an active campaigner for democratic reforms in Ukraine and also in the OSCE region. In fact, she's been awarded the Democracy Defender Award of the OSCE in 2016. She's also heading up investigations on Russia's uh, war crimes. Matvichuk was also nominated to the UN uh, Committee Against Torture, and she made history as Ukraine's first female candidate for the UN treaty body. Yeah, today it's really, really an honor for us to have Alexandra here in Kremlin File. So without any further ado, let's welcome Alexandra to the pod. Hello, Alexandra. How are you holding up? How are you coping with everything? Well, I follow the, my like basic uh, uh, feeling that I have not asked myself how I feel. Because we now work with a human pain. It's very intense work for all eight, uh, not eight, sorry, four months of Russian large-scale invasion. It's very difficult uh, from emotional and from physical uh, sides. And that's why I always answer that I'm more or less okay. More or less okay. Okay. Well, we're, no, we're sending you huge, huge, huge hugs. Okay. From, uh, from our side um, and, and for your work and for everything else. Alexandra, you were um, visiting different European cities and areas and also the United States as well, no? How do you perceive the support uh, that, you know, from these areas, from the different people that you've met for Ukraine? I will start with that point that we felt uh, this support uh, the first months of Russian invasion when I was myself in Kiev. Uh, for that time, our city was circled by Russian troops, and we don't, didn't know what will be with us next morning. And uh, that weeks and that days, we felt support of ordinary people because a lot of people uh, wrote to my Twitter, wrote to our social network or organizational profile with uh, words of support from different countries. And this is matter because when you are fighting, it's very important uh, to know that you are not alone. Uh, but then when I um, first time left Kiev uh, in, uh, in the end of uh, May of uh, this year, I saw this on my own eyes. For example, when I have a time to walk in on the street in Washington, I saw the Ukrainian flags in uh, windows of some uh, of some flats or some gardens, and it was a visible sign. Okay, maybe it's not Ukrainians, but to support Ukrainians who now fighting for democracy, you haven't be Ukrainian. You have to be a human being. Yeah, yeah, and you know, also um, just recently. There's also another sign, I think, okay, I mean, I'm here in Europe, uh, there was another sign of of concrete support. And so congratulations for Ukrainians and for the state itself 
on the candidate status, okay, for the EU. I know there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, but this is an incredible, um, let's say, show of support also for Ukraine as a state, no? And we're proud. We're actually quite lucky that Ukraine is going to be, okay, in the EU uh, when, no, there are different reforms that need to be made and so on and so forth. But I'm thinking of going, I'm thinking of all... um, the people who had started the campaign from 2004, uh, wanting to be in the EU, and then in 2014 with the Maidan, with Euromaidan, and now with the war. So congratulations, okay, to, to you all, okay, to you all. Um, let's get down to some other, okay, some other questions as well. And I was reading something that Benediktova had said on Ukrainian television, and she said, war crimes, okay, are our trouble. Every day we have from 200 to 300 of them. We have a duty. When there is a crime, we have to start an investigation. And she just said this, I think, the other, no, the other day uh, on television. So I wanted to ask you, we wanted to know for our listeners and for our people who are watching, how difficult has it been, Alexandra, to collect, let's say, the evidence and record all of these crimes, you know, in Ukraine, on the territory, but also if you're able to get any information also from the territories that are temporarily under Russian occupation? Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult work because, uh, first of all, we are faced with enormous amount of crimes. Russian troops used war crimes as a method of warfare. That's why they deliberately destroy civil objects and attack civilian population. And uh, it's very difficult to proper document all kinds of evidence of each crime. And we have this ambitious goal to fulfill uh, because we collect these uh, materials for future justice. Also, it's difficult because uh, we are in a hot stage of war. So um, mm-hmm. we have no luxury to examine the past. We always have to be ready to uh, immediately react if something happened and to send all my, our mobile groups or try to find another way to to look for information which we needed. Yeah. And uh, this, the third problem, like a barrier and obstacle, is that the part of Ukrainian territory under Russian occupation. Before this large-scale invasion, we have 7% of territory under occupation. It was Crimea and part of the Donbas, and now more than 20. And yes, we, we have information what's going on in the occupied territories, but still it's only a top of iceberg. Uh, a lot of information are hidden and yeah. uh, a lot of crimes uh, are hidden for current moment. So we have uh, in now situation when we have not only to think in how appro- an appropriate way to document all atrocities which Russians committed in Ukraine, but uh, what will be the instrument uh, who will deliver justice for uh, dozens of thousands of victims of war crimes? And this is the main question because you may you mentioned Yevromaidan before. During Revolution of Dignity, I was coordinator of civil initiative who provide legal aid for the whole prosecutor protesters around the country. Mm. At the end of three months, 
cases, we have a database with 16,000 requests for help. It was wow. different kind of requests. Some people call us, called us because they were scary, and we have a group of psychologists who work with that mm -hmm. people. But still, uh, it was a database uh, which shows that it was a systematic and large-scale attack of authoritarian regime to peaceful protests. And after eight years, we have a very modest result of justice. So I don't want to repeat this experience. Mm. And that's mm. why we have even large task, not only to document all these crimes, but to invent the effective mechanism who will deliver justice. Okay. Actually, I have just to follow up on this as well, Alexandra, how many groups are working together to gather the information? Like how many people are on the ground? Uh, how do you communicate or how do you gather the evidence itself? I can e explain it on example even of our single organization. We work on two directions. First, we restore our volunteer initiative, Yevromaidan SOS, and united several hundreds of ordinary people across the country, and they gathered the testimonies of the victims and witnesses of our crimes. We used very simple methodology because ordinary people have no knowledge of international humanitarian law yeah. and have no special preparation. And that's why it's five or six questions. So it's not even testimonies. Mm -hmm. It's a screening of diseases. But because of involving of ordinary people, we are able to quickly gather a lot of uh, such videos and uh, testimonies. And we had a proper understanding of the main uh, plot of this human story and the contact. For, and if uh, after analysis of these videos, we, uh, we will think that it will be useful for legal purpose, for example, for international criminal court or for national um, investigation or for universal jurisdiction for some country, we can contact these people again and make the more detailed interviewed. So it's first approach, it's approach of so-called numbers. And second approach is approach quality. We united with uh, uh, several dozens of organizations, uh, mostly regional, who work in their region for years and mm. have very good understanding of uh, people and uh, region as well and trust among them. And we have an uh, ambitious goal to restore in chronological order everything which Russian troops committed on the territory in, in Ukraine, wow. uh, starting uh, from 24 of February in the smallest village in each oblast. We spent uh, like a, a lot of time to develop this single methodology, to teach our documentators, to look at the quality of their work. We use different methods like mobile groups or synth um, work with verification on Berkeley protocol, like Bell and Cat do uh, gathering testimonies, mm -hmm. photo, video, documents. And for current moment, our documentary machine is moving. And now we have in our single uh, joint database uh, more than 10,000 episodes. Wow. And unfortunately, we will have more because, mm. as I told, a lot of things is still uh, hidden from ICE, especially in occupied territories. And also the war is going on and every day the Russians committed a new act of violence. Okay. Thank you. That's horrific. It's, it's beyond. Mm.
Um, Alexandra, so we have seen Russia not only targeting, uh, you know, civilians intentionally, because mm -hmm. part of their war is to target civilians, humanitarian corridors, you know, and, and, and basically go to house to house and, and, and uh, murder families. For decades, you know, the Russian regime, especially with Putin and his hardliners, they've discussed erasing Ukrainian heritage. And that's not the first time we've seen this, you know, in the past century. We saw what Stalin did to Ukrainians. We know the sentiment inside of Russia against Ukrainians. Um, and now we are seeing specifically Russia targeting cultural centers, stealing artifacts, burning down churches, burning Ukrainian books, um, you know, forcing teachers uh, in Russian occupied territories to teach, uh, to have you uh, to speak Russian and to have mm. the children speak Russian, you know, and, and wouldn't that constitute a genocide? Because there's still an argument, you know, that this is just a war. When Russia is showing that they want to destroy the culture and to erase Ukraine off, you know, the map as how it exists, wouldn't that constitute a genocide? I totally believe and can confirm that this war has a genocidical character. And this genocidical intent is very visible in Russian propaganda. When top political and top military officials of Russia increasing hate, uh, they named Ukra all Ukrainians like Nazis. Uh, they tell that Ukraine as a nation have no right to exist, that Ukrainian languages not exist, that Ukrainian culture is not exist. And then uh, this hate is resulted in the violence and uh, the enormous pain which Ukrainian civilians are feel for current moment because of action of Russian troops. Also, uh, we can see this genocidical intent in the colonization and Russification process, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. have already started in EU occupied yeah. territory after 24 February. Look what's going on in the Kherson region and Mariu or like precisely in Mariupol, yeah. uh, which is most bright example because of uh, well-known uh, and publicity of this case. Uh, they deported Ukrainians to Russia, like they, uh, they prohibited uh, pupils to study in school on Ukrainian language. They burned Ukrainian history book. So they, what they try to do, they try to erase Ukrainian identity. And this is also a tool how to provide genocide when you want uh, some concrete group uh, totally or partially destroyed. Like the whole this policy can be named with a, a phrase which the former president of Russia, Medvedev, told, I want all Ukrainians vanish. But mm. we don't want to vanish. We are human beings. Yeah. We want to live, and that's why we are fighting. But the, what is the problem? Now we have the discussion whether we can uh, judicial ground to call this genocide or not. But for me, as for people who now in the war, it's very obvious that we have to uh, to start another discussion how we can stop it. Mm -hmm. Because if we will not stop it, yeah. and this hate will increase in, and this is very obvious that mm -hmm. during the battle, the hate become more and more intense. So we can reach the dangerous point when it will be no doubt is it genocide or not. Like 
we can remember Rwanda case where it was also a lot of alarming signs to international community, but international community closed their eyes and do nothing. And, yeah. and this opened the path to massacre. Yeah, even more so. Even more so. It's true. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Um, Alexander, you were saying that, you know, um, a lot of the Russians, the Russian Russian leaders, uh, people that we hear on television, so on and so forth, who say that Ukraine should not exist, okay, as a nation, which in itself is, is absolutely insane, okay, to say. Um, they are carrying out let's say, uh, passportization and all of these different, you know, uh, different things, um, deportations. Can you give us a little bit for our, for our, let's say, people who are watching, who are not, you know, uh, haven't been following this, could you just give us a little more detail on that and on the cities exactly of, let's say, Mariupol, what is happening there and in Kherson? Russia officially states that they have deported uh, up to 2 million people, among them three, more than 300,000 of children. Uh, These uh, people uh, have no option and no uh, to, to, to choose, because um, why it's forcible deportation? Uh, they have either left in dangerous zone, because Russians don't provide permission to, to them to safely evacuate to Ukrainian controlled part of, of territory or to go to territory of Russia and have a chance to survive. For sure, a majority of people want to survive and, uh, and, and that's why it's forcible deportation. They have no right to choose. Uh, then they appeared on territory of Russia with this huge amount of people, and a, lo a lot of them without documents, without mm -hmm. money, without understanding of their rights, what they can do uh, in order to leave this territory. Uh, people were for weeks or even for months in bomb shelters without food, water, electricity, medical care. A lot of people in a huge trauma because they lost their children or their parents or their members of family or were witness of uh, horrible atrocities. So such kind of people in such mood appeared in Russian territory. And now Russia started to transfer these people into different regions of Russia. Mm -hmm. And how it's going on? When these people uh, appeared on territory of Russia, uh, they was t uh, told that you have to be in such place because uh, the train will move you to another region. And when they ask for what concrete region, they got answer that region which have uh, which will have free place for you. And such people find themselves, for example, in, in Vladivostok or mm. other far from oblasts of Russia, which become for them even more difficult than to evacuate and to leave yeah. the territory. And um, this policy uh, provides uh, opportunity for Russians uh, to uh, stop Rus Ukrainian in their territory because it's very difficult for them uh, to, to leave this territory once again. When yeah. you speak about people in trauma, you have to yeah. have even a, an energy to ask for help. A lot yeah. of people now lack this energy. Uh, and especially when we speak about uh, more than 300,000 children, 
uh, who um, even our Russian human rights defenders have no access to them and uh, no understanding where they are and what they are children, uh, whether Russians speak about children with parents or about children without parents or about children whose parents were, were killed by Russians and then deported. So we have no understanding, but what is clear that if these children will remain in territory of Russia, they will transfer them from Ukrainian children and enroll their identity to Russian, uh, to Russian uh, people uh, because they will um, provide their Russian passport, they will yeah. provide them Russian education. So it's also like a very cruel policy uh, how Russia tried to solve their demographic problems, yeah. especially in a very depressive region of Russia, with using people uh, uh, which they try to erose uh, identity. And it has to be an, provide a proper analysis by international community as well. Yeah, it's like they're replacing also, they're, are they bringing Russians into Ukraine as well? It's almost like they're they're they're. It's like they're erasing, you no, know, the whole what you were seeing before, Alexandra. Like they were they're erasing, or trying to erase, you no, know, all of uh, of Ukrainian identity. This is this is the biggest example when you take away a whole group, you know, of people and children uh, that are Ukrainian, and they're trying to erase their whole life. I mean, it, it, it's 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 something that is unbelievably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's unimaginable. And on the Russian side, I mean, Russia for decades, their birth rate has been going yep. down. Their, you know, population has been going down. So basically, this is a very sick, cruel way of kind of increasing their population by stealing people off of their land. Yep. Alexandra, we've heard a lot about um, filtration camps, which to me personally remind me of Soviet gulags. We, um, you know, recently there was a report of um, torture, murder being committed in these filtration camps. And this is where people, Ukrainians, are being kidnapped and then put through these filtration camps before they move on to Russia. And some of them are on Russian territory, some of them on uh, Russian-occupied territory. Can you discuss these filtration camps? And also, can you let our um, audience know about, you know, the concentration camp in Crimea? Because... Yeah. You know, Europe ignored a concentration camp since 2015, I believe, in Crimea that Russia had set up after they um, annexed and occupied it. Uh, We spoke with people who passed this filtration uh, procedure and this filtration camps. So a lot of things, it's still hidden from us uh, because we have no opportunity to speak with people who didn't pass this filtration procedure or filtration camps. But what we know for current moment, that from April this year, Russians provide obligatory procedure for all people who try to leave leave the dangerous zone in order to survive, uh, to pass through so-called filtration procedure. And this filtration camps is infrastructure of this procedure. As I understood, initial goals was to provide distinction between civilians and combatants, but it's very quickly mm. turned into the very inhumiliating uh, and uh, cruel uh, procedure with a lot of human rights violation, like privacy, like uh, 
um, uh, like uh, health, uh, like uh, uh, other kind of freedom. And uh, also uh, there is no guarantee for any people uh, how, how they have to behave in order to be guaranteed not to be uh, beaten or not mm. to be intimidated during this procedure. Uh, we spoke with people who were beaten uh, during this filtration procedure. Uh, we spoke with people who were witness of uh, uh, cruel treatment or killing of other people uh, or heard about such cases. And the problem for us as for human rights defender is that when you are in war and you are in fire and a lot of things is going on mm. and you try not only to document, you try to help people to survive. We every day receive hundreds requests of help. And that's why for us it's very difficult to concentrate on some concrete topic and to examine everything what's going on. That's why I have like some uh, like very general uh, description of this filtration procedure, but it's obvious crimes against humanity and the whole this procedure is crimes against humanity. Uh, what I can say about concentration camp, I will use example of Donbass because such mm. concentration camps were very uh, widely um, de uh, established in occupied part uh, by Russian of Lugansk and Donetsk region in 2014-2015. Because uh, when Russian uh, uh, pro-Russian uh, pro uh, military groups uh, mm. with support uh, of Russia occupy this part of territory, uh, they have a, another task to save this control. And in order to save this control, they have correctly created a whole network of secret illegal place of detention of people. And they started a practice of kidnapping, of torturing, of killing and uh, raping civilians who are not loyal to this occupation regime. And the main group of risk were journalists, volunteers, religious leaders, representatives of local authorities. So any people who have a trust or can provide uh, even non-violence resistant to occupation regime. And the most bright example, uh, like a symbol of horror, which Russians organized in this territory, which transferred to a gray zone where the law is not exist at all, it's isolation, concentration camp isolation. Uh, there is a brilliant book of a Donetsk journalist Stanislav Asseyev, uh, who uh, worked um, uh, during all these years on, in Donetsk, and he wrote articles for Radio Liberty, uh, not used his, his real name, but he was arrested because of his journalist work and uh, put in this concentration camp isolation. He spent in this concentration camp two years and when he was exchanged, he wrote a book uh, about whole atrocities. What's going, what, what does it mean for human being to be in such camp? It's very um, important uh, book because it's clearly show for the world What's going on now in Kherson, Zaporizhia, or Kharkiv uh, region in the territories which occupied by Russian uh, troops? 
Uh, I know that Garvard uh, will publish in English uh, this book this autumn, and I strongly recommend it to read it. Yeah. Definitely, uh, um, when I, the book I comes out here. in English, yeah. please, yeah, please, um, you know, yeah. send us the link. There is I'll one also keep other, an eye. Yeah. Yeah. There's one book that I did get through, uh, Alexandra, which was Azayev's uh, In Isolation, which is all about uh, the the camps, you know, in, uh, in Luhansk and Donetsk. So uh, I'm sorry, I, I cut out because my, of course, I'm having internet <laughs> problems, issues once again. As I said, I've got the slowest connection in the world. All right. Shall we move on to the legal issues? Hey, yeah, Olga? go ahead. You you have the next question. Okay, it's mine. Okay. Alexandra, we wanted to know a bit about uh, the different courts that have been activated and who are looking into bringing justice for the, the, the war crimes themselves. I had heard about the ICC, but also in my reading, I discovered that uh, there's the prosecutor's office and also you know, the, in Bucha, there's another court as well. Can you explain? And just on my end, um, Merrick Garland, you know? who's uh, the attorney general for the Department of Justice, just came back from Ukraine and met with Venediksova specifically over war crimes. Over this. Okay. So we uh, now have to speak about what will be the mechanism or, or like instrument of justice. Uh, because, mm. yes, we have International Commission on Inquiry, which uh, was established by UN Council of Human Rights, but the, or, or Moscow mechanism of OSCE or another uh, special reporters of, dif of different international organizations or um, conventional or monitoring bodies. But this all instrument are not bring perpetrators to justice. They can make reports, they can make recommendations, mm. they can make conclusions, ah. but still we need an instrument who can uh, put our perpetrators to jail. <laughs> Let me uh, frame it very directly, yeah. because this is important, not only yeah. reports, yeah. Uh, recommendation or assessment what's going on. So now we have only two such instruments. The first instrument is International Criminal Court. And the uh, prosecutor of ICC uh, announced uh, the full investigation in, on the Second uh, of, of March this year, uh, the, they sent the group of prosecutors to work on the ground. I had meetings with them, uh, and we cooperate. <coughs> and even before this large-scale invasion, we had experience of cooperation with International Criminal Court. It's important mechanism, but still, it's not an answer to question who will provide justice. Why? Because International Criminal Court will select only several cases. I will remind you that mm. only our joint initiative recorded more than 10,000 of episodes. So, okay. Oh, my God. If International Criminal Court select only several cases to investigate, the question still remains on the table. Who will provide justice for all other thousands and thousands of victims yeah. which will not be selected by international criminal court and the answer is national uh, system of ukraine and here we can uh, return okay. to the word of our general prosecutor irina venediktova uh, she announced recently that 
uh, Office of General Prosecutor open more than 17,000 criminal procedures. Once again, 17,000. Wow. You can imagine that it's an enormous amount. Even the Scotland Yard, even yeah. the best office prosecutor in the world are not capable to investigate no. such a huge amount of crimes. Now we have a situation when our each investigator have to parallel investigate more than 200 criminal procedures. I Just to be more uh, understandable, imagine that you have in one time to write 200 books, 200 different books. So, okay, um, maybe yeah. it's very... An, uh, very uh, direct uh, analogy because some cases have links and the same perpetrators, but still it's very difficult to investigate parallel 200 criminal procedure because it means that you have yeah. no time to investigate properly even one criminal procedure, which you have such high task. That's yeah. why uh, the question is how to increase the potential of the national system to investigate and mm. then to deliver this justice, because the same problem we will see in Ukrainian court, which will be overloaded with criminal cases. Um, I like just left um, under the frame that we have no uh, the best uh, office of general prosecutor in the world. We still uh, was in process of reforming our judicial system, our system of law enforcement bodies, and they even sometimes lack uh, a knowledge of international humanitarian law uh, to do it uh, in a proper mm. way. So we promote, as a human rights defender, the idea of creation of international hybrid tribunal, which can cover the whole uh, type mm. of international crimes, uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, uh, genocide and aggression. Mm -hmm. uh, in, and this is very important. I think it's important not only for Ukraine and for uh, dozens of thousands of victims, but for the whole world. Uh, I spoke in Oslo uh, Freedom Forum about atrocities which Russian troops mm. committed. And when I end and uh, go into the hall, uh, the girl from Libya approached me and she hugged me and she, and she was cried and I also was cried because she told, I know what, what are you saying about because Russian troops committed the same crimes in my native country. They destroyed schools as well, and they raped uh, women as well. And I was surprised because, sorry, I don't know uh, a lot of details about Libya, and I asked Russian troops, and she answered Wagner groups. It's a very famous uh, yep. um, yeah. so-called private company, yeah. but it's private company which is directed by Putin and affiliated with the Russian state. Yeah. So we have to break the circle of impunity, not only for Ukrainians, but yeah. for Libyan people, for Syrian people, from people in Georgia, because if we will not be able to stop Russian troops in Ukraine, they will go further. They remain unpunished for decades. And they really believe that they can do whatever they wanted. We must hold these criminals accountable. 
I yeah. absolutely agree. And to add to, um, you know, the Wagner mercenaries, which are under direct orders of, of uh, Russia's defense ministry, um, the UN recently, a few years ago, came out with a report of the same exact thing, them walking through Central yeah. African uh, villages, committing atrocities, rape, raping women, massacring people. So, I mean, wherever Russian troops are, you're, it's safe to say that they're committing uh, war crimes. Alexander, yeah. final question. We're going into the summer where we know many people are now going to go on vacation, um, you know, and, and media is not really the, the coverage of Ukraine. The media is waning. What does Ukraine need to win this war? And how can we make sure that Ukraine is not forgotten, that it's still in the news, that people still understand the importance, you know, of supporting Ukraine and that Ukrainians are fighting not only for themselves, but for European and United States security? Yeah. Like, how do we make sure, you know, that that people still keep it? Because I, my biggest fear prior to this was, you know, that, yes, the media will cover it for a bit and then eventually all disappear but yeah. the atrocities are becoming even worse day by day and yet yeah. now you see maybe um, a 30 second coverage every other day of ukraine yeah. so what can we yeah. do to make sure that people you know are thinking about ukraine understand ukraine and what does ukraine need from us from europe from it's us a very brilliant question because frankly speaking i'm i'm afraid if russians did what they did uh, in bucha during that time when the whole world was watching what's going on in Ukraine, you can only imagine yeah. what they can possibly do if the world will not be watching what's going on in Ukraine. So I think that we have to remind to ourselves that this war has not only territorial di dimension and like ethnicity dimension, because Russians try to kill the Ukrainian people only because we are Ukrainian, but also democratic dimension. What do I mean? This war started not in 2022. This war started in 2014, after a collapse of Ukrainian authoritarian regime, when Ukraine obtained a chance to provide a quick democratic transformation. And eight years ago, in order to stop us on this way, Russia started occupation of Crimea and hybrid war in the Donbas. So now we are fighting for our democratic choice. And when we succeed, it will have a huge impact to the whole region and to the democratic future of Russia itself. Mm -hmm. If we'll not be able to stop Putin in Ukraine, mm -hmm. he will go further. Because it's not the war between two countries. It's the war between two systems system of authoritarianism and system of democracy. And this, Ukraine now only a far front of the battle between these two systems. And that's why I understand that it's very difficult to stress attention only to Ukrainian events. And it's possible when you are in Vienna or in Berlin or in Washington or, in, or like in Geneva to switch off the news. But now millions mm. and millions of people couldn't switch off the news because we're on the streets. And we live in very interconnected mm. world. Once again, Putin announced that he has historical mission to um, increase the territory of Russia. So 
it's very understandable that who will be the next target in and uh, in European Union. Uh, so now we are in situation of war when we as a people couldn't rely upon on rule of law mechanism because the whole UN system couldn't stop Putin's atrocity. And we very clearly see that the whole UN system lays in ruins like Ukrainian Mariupol. But what still work? Mm. Human solidarity still work. If we couldn't temporarily rely upon on law, we can rely upon on ordinary people. And we feel the support of ordinary people who demand for their own government to support Ukraine, to provide long-range distance weapon to Ukraine, to impose their effective economical sanctions against Putin regime, to help Ukrainian refugees in their country. So ordinary solid, like human solidarity, it's been more than the whole international architecture of peace and security. I believe in people. And I totally uh, believe that massive mobilization of ordinary people in different countries can change this uh, situation for better. And our task, now I try to respond to your question, is to provide opportunity for ordinary people how they can join. Now we will thinking about different informational and other kind of campaign which can involve uh, dif different people throughout the world. Okay, Alexandra, are there are there I don't know some associations like where do you recommend that we can send? some of our listeners, because I have friends even here in Italy, they don't know, okay, exactly where to go. I usually direct them to the to the Ukrainian government's website because it is you no know, official. But are there certain groups or that you, you know that you know of that need help and where we can direct some of that? You know, some it of those depends people there. what people are wanted to do. If they want to donate, it's better not to donate to international organization like UN or International Committee of Red Cross. Yeah, no. Because we will we will obtain no. this assistance after two or three years. They're very slow and very bureaucratic. Yeah. And and speed is very essential in a war because when you need water, yeah. you need water now, yeah. not after three months when you proceed no. all tenders, mm. procedures and all bureaucratic agreements. You can die without water. So speed, yeah. it's very important. Yeah. That's why yeah. if uh, it's uh, about donation, uh, there are uh, a lot of uh, reliable Ukrainian fund, uh, like um, uh, Save Lives, Povernese uh, Živim, or... Uh, for example, American organization Razum. So it's it's very easy to Google mm -hmm. and to find uh, the, the trustful uh, Ukrainian uh, funds. If you want to do some in legal purpose, you can contact with us, with Yevromaidan SOS. We have Facebook page, we okay. have Twitter page. Uh, you can find m myself in Twitter. And w we now try to establish more comprehensive cooperation with lawyers uh, in different countries and bar associations uh, uh, in order to find a proper solution, what we can do in situation when the law not work yeah. at all. And if you want to volunteering, also there are a lot of different initiatives. 
which emerged when international organizations evacuated from Ukraine. For example, we have uh, Ukrainian volunteer mm. groups, and they have also their websites, their Facebook, and uh, you can join to their work. So I, I totally believe that if ordinary people will help Ukraine to resist, we can stop this war fast. Uh, and not to turn to to very long ex, long to, uh, war, which will provide um, exhaustion not only for Ukrainian people, but uh, bad impact yeah. to the world itself. Yeah. And just to add one more thing, um, you know, everybody is a social media user. If you see Russian disinformation, just take the simple step to say this is disinformation because Russia is fighting this war on the ground in Ukraine and fighting mm -hmm. this war in the social media, you know, space. And God knows I constantly, you know, see their disinformation and the fear mongering, um, you know, operations yeah. that they're trying yeah. Even yeah. with Lithuania, simple, you know, Lithuanian forcing partial, um, you know, uh, ban on on sanctioned goods, which was like minimal, had nothing to do with a blockade. Yeah. And I mean, the whole day from morning to night, I just saw, you know, oh, my God, World War Three. Well, World War Three. Yeah. I mean, what is the point of sanctions yeah. if you're not going to enforce them? You know, yeah. So yeah. Um, no, there's even so take much. the samples, a simple step just to, you know. Make sure to mark it because even now it's trolls, obviously, but like, you know, influential people, the, the Russian ambassador, um, ambassadors, and just anyone, you know, that you see spreading disinformation. Yeah. Okay. We would need to thank you, Alexandra, for the time that you were able to give us from your busy, okay, from your work, your busy work and we stand in solidarity every single day with Ukraine and with Ukrainians. Thank you very much for solidarity and for this uh, discussion. No, it's our honor. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on and anything you need us to help you with, please, yeah. you know, we're here. And we will be happy to do whatever we can on I'm our part. I'm very grateful. And even through this Zoom, feel the warmth of your heart. Like now it's very matter because <laughs> when, once again, when you have no other effective instrument, you can rely upon only on people. So we are really grateful. Thank you. Hey, everybody, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara, with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben Brett, and Jordi Micellis of Midas Media, with associate producers Ruby Franco and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camara. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts.